Hi, thanks for joining me again on my podcast of Bible Stories. In the first episode, I talked about my initial growing up experiences in the Jehovah's Witnesses religion, up until about the age of 13, how some of the early indoctrinations and some of the early experiences had affected my core beliefs and outlook of the world. I'm rejoining the story now at the age of 14. This was 1986 isolation. At 14 I felt I didn't fit in. I didn't buy into the JW religion. I had no real interest but I plodded along to the meetings and the excruciating business of knocking on doors was torture. It was embarrassing, humiliating, scary and boring all at the same time. I think we knew we were annoying people but we just kept plodding on up and down the drives and sticking to the script. This is how it would go. Hi there, we're calling today with the Watchtower Awake magazines and wondered if you'd be interested in reading them. The Watchtower has an interesting lead article on Armageddon. This was complete with a colour photo of an atomic mushroom cloud over a city. Or the Awake magazine which has an article on masturbation. Is it a sin? I'm not joking, that was actually on the front cover. And then I would say, the magazines are 20 pence each if you'd like to read more. Mostly, people would politely say no. Occasionally, they would slam the door, and rarer still, they would buy, handing over the 40 pence, and then quickly shutting the door behind them. On the rarest of occasions, they would start to engage in a conversation. This is when the adult, or more confident member of the pairing, would step in and take over. A conversation would start about whatever I had sparked interest in, reading the front cover of the magazine. I guess we kids were used as a warm-up act. I mean, who can get angry at a smartly dressed kid standing on your front doorstep on a Saturday morning? Some of the worst times of all, when we called at a door, the door would open, it would be one of my school friends. And that was excruciatingly embarrassing, especially if the uh, article was about masturbation. At school the next morning, or on the Monday after, the rumours were spread about me and my dad calling on people and often it was met with curiosity and questions and to be fair not hostility school friends were always intrigued and i think probably uh, pitied still about this uh, strange behavior that we had to do on a saturday morning it did make you feel different from the other kids i was the kid who sat out of assemblies couldn't do re couldn't make christmas cards or join in the festive celebrations I wasn't really bullied for this, unsurprisingly, but I think it was because I did my best to fit in with my school friends. I was the class clown, the one who would do the silly stunts to get approval. But all the time, as a Jehovah's Witness, you're not encouraged to associate with other non-witnesses. So school friendships were always kept at hand's length, always at a distance. What you're supposed to do is associate with your peers within the congregation but within the congregation because I didn't really buy into the whole thing in the back of my mind even though I was only 14 I still didn't really have any friends amongst my peers the kids who were my age a lot of them were baptized and I felt excluded from this exclusive club. Maybe I should explain a little word on baptism and Jehovah's Witnesses. The Witnesses believe that a child should not be baptised at birth 
and that it should be a conscious decision that they make later in life to dedicate their lives to Jehovah. So if you were a kid and you weren't of an age to be baptised or you hadn't made your mind up that you really believed in it, you were kind of like an outsider. Me and a similar friend, a guy called David, who was a similar situation to me, he was dragged along by his mother to these uh, meetings. We used to hang around at the back of the hall at the end of it and just have some normal chit-chat. Looking back now, the organisation always prides itself on its warmth and love and they're well known for love bombing each other when people go to the meetings but my memories of it was very different it was the total opposite for me it was it was kind of isolating so I hate going to the meetings I hate going on the work but yeah I had no one to talk about it to uh, and even if you did mention it talking about it is not really uh, an option because then it would be seen as being weak spiritually or having a lack of faith you know remembering and reminiscing about these early experiences the only kind of bullying um, that I did remember getting as a child was actually within the congregation some of the more spiritual quote-unquote kids would make comments about oh he didn't answer in the talk or in the meetings or oh, I see your shoes are not been polished do you not think you should have made a bit more effort for Jehovah and this was the only type of bullying that I ever used to experience needless to say the whole time going to the meetings and up to that very early adolescent age was uncomfortable and isolating 1988 leaving school I left school aged 15 three months before my 16th birthday. I got one GCSE in art. I'd messed around all the other lessons, filling in, I guess. I mean, who wants to be the JW and a SWAT? I had plans of doing one thing, and that thing was the only thing I was interested in, drawing and art. And I put together a little portfolio, and I got a place at the local college. In fact, because of my level of artwork, they wanted to put me ahead two years in with the 18-year-olds. I remember being really fearful of this. Again, I thought I was going to be the, the odd JW outsider thrown in with a load of worldly 18-year-olds. I was worried I was going to get pulled apart, so I turned down the offer. And after taking a number of low-skilled apprenticeships in local shops, I ended up being an apprentice butcher. Now, this was here that the skills that I'd learnt at school to be a bit of a jack -a lad a bit of a comedian, they were useful skills and I fitted in quite quickly. The lads that I worked with opened my eyes to the world. The language, the stories, the laughter, the dirty jokes. My manager there, a guy called Frank, and I were very close and over the years he took me under his wing and kind of opened up my eyes to the, the real world outside of the organisation seeing things that I'd never seen and we used to go for a drink after work in the, in the pub. He even once confessed, although I think he was quite drunk at the time, that he saw me as a son. Finally, I felt that I was being accepted and liked for who I was. We used to make all sorts, pie fillings, smoked sausages, but interestingly black pudding. Now blood in the Jehovah's Witness religion is a big taboo. It's sacred, must not be eaten. They have famously taken this ancient mosaic law and applied it not only to eating blood, 
but also to not having blood transfusions. I remember when I started at the butchers, I was quite worried about this situation of handling blood. Should I take the religious standpoint and say that I wouldn't be involved in it? <laughs> that would mean I would get the sack on the first day. So I asked my dad and he said that making blood sausage or black pudding was okay as long as I didn't eat it. So that's what I did. I took those churns of warm blood straight from the abattoir and turned them into black pudding for people to eat. This apparently is okay. I actually eat black pudding now, but I remember the first time I tried it when I just left the witnesses and I still worked at the butchers and it felt like eating something forbidden, like the forbidden fruit. It was kind of right, but wrong at the same time. My exit from the butcher's shop coincided with my exit from the JWs. Both were quite dramatic and inextricably linked. 1990, waking up and leaving. By this time, I was a mess of mixed up feelings, emotions and beliefs. I was frustrated, angry at myself for not having the bottle to speak out about how I was feeling. And it was a simmering pot that was about to boil over in dramatic style. I sat through my last Tuesday book study at my parents' house in a daze. Why was I sitting through this? I'm 18 years old, sitting here. I don't want to be with these people listening to this rubbish. Afterwards, I went out into the kitchen and stood at the sink, gripping it so tightly you could see the whites of my knuckles. I guess, looking back, the anger was at myself at this point. My mum came in and asked if I was okay. I must be a very good actor because she completely missed the contorted ball of rage that was standing there in the kitchen. I lied as I had kept lying throughout my childhood and said I was fine. But inside I knew I just couldn't take it anymore. I'd had enough. By the time the Thursday meeting came, I'd driven myself there separately to my family. I'm not really sure why, maybe all the time I was planning to turn the car around and go back home, but I did go to the meeting. It was the last one I went to. I can't remember where I was sitting, what the subject of the meeting was, but I was just sitting there, the heart beating loudly and clearly in my ears. Everything was a blur and that's it. I stood up and walked out right in the middle of the meeting. And as I pushed those doors of the Kingdom Hall open and the fresh spring air and the evening light filled my face, I just couldn't take it anymore. Not living this lie, keeping everyone happy except for myself, continuing this facade. I got in my car and I drove. I still remember to this day exactly where I went. My heart pounding in my chest. I parked in a lay-by somewhere. I didn't shout. I didn't cry, I was in a daze, a rage, a fear-filled emotional pressure cooker. I knew that I would have to go back and face my dad at some point, so for some reason I decided to go back to the car park and park near the Kingdom Hall. I don't know, maybe I was thinking I could sneak back in unnoticed, say I was ill or something. Luckily, I didn't have to use any more excuses. Dad was waiting there in the car park when I got back. He got in the car. Are you all right? He said. I saw you leave. The blood was thumping loudly through my head. My ears almost deaf with it. 
I took a deep breath. I can't do it anymore, Dad. I just can't. I just don't believe. His face was blank. Not angry or sympathetic. I think he was just shocked. Something about not realising I felt this way and something about that he'd had low points in his life where he, he had also doubted his faith. But it was all on deaf ears. I wasn't returning. I wasn't listening. I was done. Back home for the next few days, the atmosphere was probably quite tense. I can't honestly remember exactly what happened. Although I do remember that no elders were drafted in. My dad didn't come and try and talk to me or ask me how I was feeling. I think he just buried his head in the sand, hoped the problem would go away. Something which I've done myself in adulthood. When on Sunday morning I got the knock on the bedroom door to wake me up for the Sunday meeting, I froze. Which bit of I'm not doing this anymore did he not get? I shouted I'm not coming to the meeting through the closed door. The door slowly opened. He obviously wasn't happy. He said, well, you can't lay around in bed all day and close the door. I can remember really very clearly the sense of relief when I heard that door shut and the rest of the family getting ready in the car driving off to the meeting. This was it. It was done. I was free. He had finally got the message. I no longer had to go. The relief was overwhelming, but also mixed with fear as I knew the questions and interrogation as to why and what would happen next would still have to happen. But for now, for those few hours, I was finally free. I showered, made some toast and watched TV in my bedroom. Wow, I can remember this feels great. This is how everyone must feel on a Sunday morning, not having to get up, go to a meeting and then on ministry work afterwards. Sadly though, I didn't have anyone to share this newfound freedom and euphoria with. I was isolated from my old school friends as I didn't associate with them anymore. And as I said before, I had very few friends within the congregation. And the ones that I did have had been not disfellowship, but had drifted away. And again, I wasn't associating with them. I felt very alone and isolated. Remembering all these emotions is quite hard, even though it was 30 years ago. What I should have done is... I should have got out of Dodge. I should have gone and stayed with my grandfather in London, given a, given myself a bit of breathing space, taken the heat off a little bit. But I didn't. I stayed put and the inevitable happened. We had the Inquisition when my parents got home from the meeting later that Sunday. They sat there ashen-faced, telling me how disappointed they were, how I'd let them down, what a bad example I was to my brother and sister but I didn't care, I remained steadfast. There was no going back now. The deed was done and I was free. Sadly, it wasn't gonna be that easy. 1990, the aftermath. I got back in touch with two of my friends who had left the JWs before me, David and Ruth, and slowly I started to tip my toe into the outside world. The atmosphere in my parents' house was very tense. I really can't remember um, a great deal, but some of the more notable points 
I do remember, and I'll tell you about them now. I remember my first Friday night out was in the town and Ruth had said she would come along with me and we would go out drinking. (laughs) It was a revelation. Up until that point, my drinking had just been done in quiet country pubs, places off the radar. Interestingly enough, we used to quite often go and sneak into pubs when we were supposed to be going on field service after the Sunday morning meeting. Or I would go for a few drinks with the lads at the butchers after work but that was only to work in men's clubs or spit and sawdust pubs. It wasn't a proper Friday night out with people of my own age. I think Ruth saw me as her harmless mate who would run around after her and be a taxi service. That night out, the first night, was interesting. I bumped into a lot of old school friends who were surprised to see me after two years. There were questions about the Jehovah's Witnesses and and my eyes were opened to the party atmosphere of a Friday night out in town. Fake tans, short skirts, spruced up boys and girls all on the pull. Standing room only in the bars and the queues several people deep to get served at the bar. It was a real eye-opener. Ruth was barely with me. She was casually flirting and getting chatted up by the guys who looked me up and down and probably thought, What is she doing with that weirdo? I mustn't have been drinking alcohol that night as when we got back to the car, Ruth high on all the attention she'd got. I found my car had been broken into and my leather jacket stolen from the back seat. (laughs) The night ended on a downer. When I finally got home, mum and dad were still up, probably waiting to see what time I'd got back and in what state I was in. When I told them my car had been smashed and my jacket stolen, my dad stood up and looked me in the eye and said, Well... That's what you get for living in Satan's world. (laughs) I went to bed crestfallen. Maybe he was right. It certainly put a negative end to the very first night out in the world. But even though I still believed in a lot of the teachings of the Jehovah's Witnesses, and I hadn't at that point unpicked and studied the JW doctrine, I just knew that regardless of whether it was Satan's influence or not, I just didn't want to be in the JW religion. I didn't want to go to the meetings or on the ministry or have everlasting life in paradise. I just wanted to be free. Basically, I chose death over enforced worship. I was prepared to die. I was committing spiritual and physical suicide. Maybe this is a self-destructive trait that I've retained. I was prepared to make the ultimate sacrifice for mental freedom. And if I can make that choice... I can do whatever I want, even if I die because of it, because I am free to do whatever I want at any cost. When I say die, I'm obviously referring to the fact that if you leave the Jehovah's Witness religion, you are going to die at Armageddon. Another instance I remember is when my family had gone out for a Thursday meeting and I was getting ready to meet a friend in the pub and I cranked my music up loud so I could hear it while I was showering in the bathroom and I jumped in the shower. The next thing I knew, the door was almost being knocked off its hinges, thumping and screaming coming from the other side. My dad had come home. He'd forgotten something and returned to the house and found my hi-fi cranked all the way up to 11, gone into my bedroom to turn it down, and bamboozled by the array of buttons and graphic equalisers, 
and unable to find the off switch, it flew him into a fierce rage. I remember getting out of the shower and not wanting to open the door and face him, but I did and went in and turned the hi-fi off. He was so angry, he was physically shaking. Come to think of it, I never remember my dad ever forgetting something for a meeting. I wonder whether he was just coming back as a ruse to see if he could catch me doing something. (laughs) I guess it worked. I had rave music filling the house and halfway down the street apparently. I guess I would be annoyed at my own son if I came home to find that happening. But it was the way that he acted, this uncontrollable rage. That is a reminder of his temper back then. I'm happy to say my dad is a lot older now. and I think old age has has calmed him down a little bit. Uh, He doesn't have this, this problem with his temper. And as I've said before, sometimes people have their own issues to deal with. And if they are feeling depressed or stressed... Sometimes, even though this you can't condone this behaviour, it sometimes comes out in bad ways. Another incident I remember was later that summer after I'd left the witnesses and the whole family was going to the annual Jehovah's Witness convention held at a football stadium in Edinburgh. Now, conventions are a big deal to the JWs. It's a chance for them to have their spiritual batteries recharged. And as I was obviously not trusted to be left at home and the accommodation had been booked months in advance, I was told I had to come to Edinburgh even though I wasn't going to be attending the convention. So there I was. After breakfast, I was put on the street and the family went off, leaving me to wander around the city with no key to get back into the hotel and eight hours to fill. I just walked around and around all weekend, taking photographs of the sights and people watching, constantly watching the clock to see when they would return. It was humiliating, lonely and controlling. 1991. The Breakdown. I settled into my new life quickly. I reconnected with old school friends and went out regularly. I partied hard. I ditched the glasses for contact lenses, hit the gym and the sunbed and grew my hair long. People were startled at the transformation. The skinny, specky JW kid was now gone. I was living my life as I wanted it. (laughs) Although I wasn't. My dad was still struggling with my decision and combined with his faith and belief and his bully mentality, he did his best to make it as difficult as possible for me to go about my business as I wanted. Among his derisory comments such as telling me I would end up in prison one day, he decided that a curfew was the best way to control his unruly son. The door would be locked at 10.30pm and if I wasn't home by then, I was locked out. I spent many evenings sleeping at different people's houses or on the floor or on sofas. One night, I couldn't find anywhere to stay. It was raining and I was drunk so I couldn't drive but I got into my car and I climbed into the boot as I knew I shouldn't be caught sitting in the car, drunk. I shivered all night long, hardly sleeping, squashed into the tiny boot space, until eventually I had to get up and move the car. I was obviously still drunk as I mounted a curb and drove straight over a roundabout when I was driving out of the town looking for somewhere to park up and sleep off the booze. In recent years, I've looked back on this period with a new perspective. I now have a son myself who was 20 years old, who also went off the rails, and he needed some tough love to bring him back to his senses. But that's what it was done in. Love. It wasn't a bigoted, despising, controlling manner. Maybe my dad thought he was acting in love, or it was his version of it. I don't know. 
I've recently apologised to them for the obvious concern they must have experienced during my release from the JW chains. To them, wrapped up in the cotton ball safety of a cult life, to have their teenage son grow physically and mentally stronger by the day would have been such an alien experience to my parents. They had no view or experience of this life that I was living, only that it was Satan's world and I was now under his control. Back in 1991, I was not mentally or emotionally equipped to deal with this control. I had left one controlling organisation and wanted to get out and enjoy my life, but the curfew and the constant derisory remarks and the general atmosphere in the house started to break me down. I lived under my parents' roof and therefore under their rules, and it was still making me angry, frustrated and depressed. At work, I was getting wound up, and one day, over a silly comment, I exploded with rage and walked out. I was feeling out of control. This anger and frustration was eating away at me from inside. My mum came with me to the doctors, and I broke down in tears. I can't remember if I offloaded the full story, but the doctor could see I was struggling emotionally and signed me off from work and put me on antidepressants. Without work to go to every day, and no support from my family... I became more and more withdrawn and angry. I wasn't sleeping. I hated my dad for still inflicting his religious belief system and the rules that went with it on me. But I was trapped. I had nowhere to go. No one to talk to. And a growing anger and resentment that I was being persecuted for just being myself. Why couldn't I be left to get on with my life as I wanted? The doctor had arranged for some counselling and when I went for the appointment, I was anxious and confused. I'm not sure how far I was into the medication, but my mood was all over the place. The counsellor was a young guy training as a psychologist, and not much older than me, and started with his questions. Again, my head was throbbing, my mind started to crack. What am I doing here? Who is this prick asking me all these questions? Can they not see how angry I am? I exploded into another temper and started kicking the filing cabinets over in the office when the councillor had left the room. The breakdown had started. It was starting to take control of my mind. I was losing myself to my anger. It was consuming me and overtaking me. A sister from the congregation who had herself a history with depression was brought in to talk to me to see if she could connect and help me in any way. Looking back, Julie was not a well woman herself, having spent many years cycling through depressed episodes. But I guess if you focus on someone else other than yourself to worry about, it can often be a beneficial relationship to both parties. And it was decided that me and my dad should be kept apart for a bit. And I went to live with her and her husband. I was off work on antidepressants, eating four or five meals a day. I put on weight. I was sleeping whenever I was tired and staying up all night watching TV and movies. Julie would often stay up all night with me, just keeping me company, and to be fair, it, it exhausted her. She wasn't the right person to help, but I am grateful for the time that she spent and the help she tried to give. Eventually, it was decided I had to go back home, as I couldn't stay at Julie's indefinitely. I don't know, as I'm telling this, if it gives a complete feeling of the utter mental distress I was in. I was drugged up, not working, frustrated and angry at the situation I was in. I would lie in bed and the anger was fighting to come out. I wanted to lash out and smash things, but I kept it inside as best I could. 
my body convulsing and going rigid, lying in the fetal position. My stomach muscles were clenching as I struggled to contain the rage that wanted to come out of me. Julie was brought across to see me. I was in bed, sweating, knotted and contorted, incoherent and deliriously mumbling aggressively. No one could help me now. I was losing my mind to the demons inside and no one could see how much pain I was in. This was it. I snapped. I started my path of destruction. I punched a hole in the wall. <laughs> a classic move for angry adolescents, I know, but back then I thought I was a maverick. I ripped off my headboard and smashed it into pieces. In my mind I was thinking I would stab myself with the sharp splinters of timber. Then I started downstairs. I was roaring like an animal. My mum tried to stop me, but I was out of control. This was it. I had started, so I would finish. I'm going to kill him. I'm going to kill him. I kept repeating in my growls. I went to the kitchen, and my dad was there. The fear in his face will always be in my memory. He was the cause of my pain. This was all his fault. I went to the knife drawer. I got a large kitchen knife. I was going to hurt him like he hurt me. Dad did what any sensible person would do when faced with a roaring beast of an adolescent holding a knife and bent on revenge. He fled, faster than I have ever seen him move, out the kitchen, through the garage and down the street. I stalked after him, snot and tears and anger and wildness pouring out of me, but I knew I wasn't going to chase him down and stab him. I achieved what I wanted. Now you know how much I hurt. Now you know. Thanks for listening to this part of my podcast of Bible stories. That's been quite a difficult thing to remember. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe as I'll be updating the next chapter, which saw me spend time in a psychiatric ward and the continued struggles with depression and emotional control that I endured. If you like this podcast, please rate and leave a review. It really helps for me to share my story. And if you would like to connect, you can do through my Twitter or Instagram accounts. Just search for Theocritic. Until next time, thanks for listening. Goodbye.